We've had a number of weeks now, really two months, I guess, to spend some time this summer in Psalms and other subjects, and we turn back now to a longer-term study that had been underway for a year now in the Gospel of Matthew. It's taken us uh, a year, of course, with some time off for Christmas and Easter to to finish the 12th chapter of Matthew, you say, this is going to be a long, long thing. There's 28 chapters in Matthew. I will say to you that we uh, went a little more in a verse-by-verse close fashion in the Sermon on the Mount, and so there probably will be a sense of faster progress as we resume our study of Matthew. I remind you, we're in the midst of Jesus' public ministry. We had seen a lot of evidence in recent chapters of opposition to Christ by the unbelieving Pharisees and leaders who challenged him at every, every turn of the road, practically. And then the, the very last thing in chapter 12 of Matthew was him saying, the people who are really closest to him, so much so that they're his family, like his mother and sisters and brothers, are those disciples of his who hear his word and choose to do it. Listen now as I read the beginning of chapter 13 of Matthew, and we'll read through verse 23. Hear the Word of God. That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it while the people stood on shore. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. And as he was scattering the seed, some fell in the path, and birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But then when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. And still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. He who has ears, let him hear. The disciples came to him and asked, Why do you speak to the people in parables? And he replied, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has this knowledge will be given more, and, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have it, Even what he has will be taken from him. This is why I speak in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing but never understanding, ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused, and they hardly hear with their ears. They have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts, and in turn I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For I tell you the truth, many prophets and righteous men longed to see what you see but did not see it and to hear what you hear, and they did not hear it. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. And this is the seed sown along the path. The one who received that 
Seed that fell on rocky places is the man who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since he has no root, he lasts only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. The one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word. But the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it, making it unfruitful. But the one who received the seed that fell on good soil is the man who hears the word and understands it, and he produces a crop yielding a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. This is God's own revealed word given to his people. Each day I pass by an Amish farm that presently, like all the farms of our county, is filled with field corn seven or eight feet tall. And I've noticed, actually just recently, since the corn has gotten tall, the farmer or someone has put up alongside the field between the fence and the road some white agricultural signs. You've seen these. I read the one in particular, but there are different ones. The one I noticed this morning said on the sign, Dobler's Hybrid 731XY. Now, I'm not an agricultural expert, but I'm supposing that this sign is supposed to tell me something about the laboratory-produced or genetically enhanced strain of corn that is planted in that field. And the only reason I can think why it's there is, is so that perhaps people will notice if that field has a particularly lush-looking, strong crop of corn, perhaps other farmers will say, oh, I better have Dobler's 731XY in my field. But there it is, advertising, apparently, the type of seed that is planted there. I can tell you I have not seen any signs ever promoting the quality of the soil in which the seed is grown. That would be interesting, wouldn't it? I wonder if an Amish farmer would ever come up with a a homemade sign, the kind they use, you know, to tell you they have rhubarb or homemade brooms or whatever, and uh, there'd be a sign along the road that said, rich limestone-based topsoil. Tilled by generations of this family, nourished 12 times last year with fresh manure, guaranteed to grow a good crop. I haven't seen that. It, It seems as if it's the seed that is the variable that someone wants to advertise and tell us what has been done there, that that, per, that this seed uh, will be something we want to know about and perhaps watch how many bushels of corn per acre come from that field. Well, we are returning to this systematic study of Matthew now after being away and coming through this time, as I mentioned, of opposition to Jesus Christ, very strong, bitter opposition in the midst of chapter 12 is one of the places where, remember, they, they said the Son of God must be a devil He must be working by the power of the devil. And he was answering them about their wicked and adulterous hearts and how they wouldn't respond no matter what signs were given to them. There was a great divide between the official leadership who did not believe 
and Christ who had come to call those who would respond in faith. And he was moving more and more now out of households and out of synagogues into the rural areas and speaking openly to the crowds. In fact, our chapter opens by noting that he was, he was by the side of the Sea of Galilee and had to use a boat for his pulpit because the crowd was so heavy around him. And what he begins to do and what's remarkable about this chapter we're beginning today is for the first time in this gospel, the introduction of the word parable. As important as those are in the ministry of Jesus in the various gospels, we haven't encountered a formal parable. There have been figures of speech and and maybe little mini illustrations that he's used before this, but not a full-fledged parable, by that name anyway, before chapter 13. And now suddenly there are seven of them in this chapter. Obviously, as God's Spirit moved upon Matthew to collect this material and present it, he decided this was a place to put together this parabolic material about what the kingdom of God is like. What are its characteristics? What, what is true of those people who respond in faith to the Son of God as opposed to those who are rejecting him? And along the way, we get some commentary about what a parable is. Basically, a story from real life which carries in it a spiritual truth or a lesson. But interestingly, and I won't dwell on this too much today, you do see in this text how a parable can act as a kind of like a sieve to sift out one kind of person from another because one person hears the parable and responds by having a seeking, open heart of faith and says, yes, I I hear the truth of God there, while another person hears it and it sounds like a riddle and it doesn't mean anything to him and, and maybe just hardens his heart and even drives him farther from the Lord. John Stott The British commentator on the Scripture said a parable reveals truth to those who are hungry to listen for it, but conceals truth from those who are too lazy or prejudiced or unbelieving to consider the matter in the first place. Well, the first of these parables, and probably the the major one that dominates, the others are, are both shorter, and in some ways they embellish the first one, is called the, usually called the parable of the sower. It's very familiar to most of you. It's hardest to preach, by the way, on the things that are most familiar because you think, well, I know what that says. I've heard it so many times before. Actually, the, the name, the parable of the sower, is kind of a misnomer because it really isn't about a sower. It's much more about seed and more particularly about the soil which receives the seed. It's Its correct name would probably be parable of the soils, but it's never been called that in popular language. Wherever the Word of God is being preached or taught to people who are either listening or not listening, the dynamics of this parable have an application. It challenges us and asks us today, are we really as receptive as we think we are to hearing truth revealed from God? Are we people whose minds and spirits are receptive in a way like like good soil, ready to receive seed that God would plant there so it might grow in the manner that he designs? Is this true of us? Well, the first point before us, I would say, is this today, and it's an obvious one. God 
is the sower who broadcasts the seed of his word far and wide. There's no question about who is the one and what the, what the seed is and who is the one broadcasting it here today. As Jesus sat in that boat by the Sea of Galilee, if you've ever been there, you know there's, it's a, still today a rural area. You can see fields spread out, and you can see the, the, quite a bit of the shore of the lake. It's small enough that you can almost see the whole circumference of it. And it's very easy to imagine, and we don't know this with certainty, but it's certainly easy to imagine. As Jesus sat there, there were farmers working in their fields nearby on the lake shore. And that could very well be why he chose this particular image and drew it to their attention. Now, they farmed differently, of course, in those days. There were no tractors. There were no technology that, that we have. One of two different ways the soil might have been prepared and planted, the typical way you might think with a plow going out and preparing the part of the field that had been cleared and plowing it, opening the soil, and then out would go the farmer with his bag of seed slung usually around a shoulder by a strap and available at his waist where he would simply take it and fling the seed, broadcast the seed, trying to probably develop some kind of a steady motion so that he would spread it evenly over the tilled area. But there are others who say and and who think that what might have been happening here, we can't really say with surety, that there were times when it was actually done the opposite way, that they would go out and spread the seed first and then come and plow it under. Well, whichever way, the point of the parable here is to tell us that some of the seed didn't fall exactly where it was most helpful or where it was going to grow the best. When we think about God broadcasting the seed of his word in our time, it certainly is an amazing subject. You think about the many, many millions of Bibles that are translated into most languages of the earth and sold still by the millions. The Bible is the only book that has entire societies that do nothing but produce that book. You know, there isn't any, any other book that's been around for centuries that would have its, its own entire publishing houses that do nothing else but produce and distribute that book and translate that book into, into many other languages. Of course, there are tens of thousands of books written about the good news of God, about Jesus Christ himself, or about doctrinal subjects. Every year, hundreds and hundreds of them pouring out. I tried to calculate in my mind how many sermons are, are preached within the Christian faith on a given Sunday, I, I couldn't come up with a clue. It, had to be, it has to be way over a million sermons by individual preachers on any given day, Sunday or even other days of the week as God's Word is being expounded around our earth. You think of Bible study groups gathering to study the Word of God. We have neighbors who, who have a regular weekly study group that meets at their home from another church, and, and it clogs our street. Uh, we're coming home usually on Wednesday night, and the whole street is, has got a dozen or more cars, and we know they're there for this Bible study group in our neighbor's home, and that can be multiplied thousands and thousands of times. Radio broadcasts, sending the word out, television. I think what our own radio broadcast does, it's, it's amazing when we stop and think that in two services here on a Sunday morning, a thousand of you approximately come and worship and listen to the word of God. 
And then a few weeks later, the same message goes out, and at least, we're told, 20 times that number. Hear the message. It's amazing. And then you, you haven't even yet approached the wonders of the Internet, which in our days have, have taken the whole thing to another level so that you can go and, and with some keystrokes on your computer, you can search out the ministry of a fine, outstanding preacher like John Piper or Tim Keller or the late Dr. Jim Boyce or many, many others that you might be interested in. And you can go and hear audio messages just so easily in your own home. Think of how God's Word is just broadcast and poured out there like great seed to do its work in the lives of so many people today. We heard early in the, in the service from Isaiah 55, that great passage that says, as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return without doing their work, God said, so is my word that goes forth from my mouth. It accomplishes all that I desire and achieves the purpose for which I sent it. We just sang a hymn about the sufficiency, the perfection of the Word of God. That's, it's perfect in, in, what it, in the way it exists and in what it is able to do. And it ha- it's dynamic with power in it, a supernatural energy from God to convict of sin, to correct people and guide people and give people new birth. You hear stories sometimes perhaps of reading about Egyptian tombs or other ancient tombs of people from hundreds of years ago, and they'll, they'll find a grave and break open a grave that maybe the Mayans or some other ancient civilization with a vessel of corn that was put in the grave. And scientists have taken that corn and put it in the earth, and lo and behold, it sprouts. It's, it's been there dormant in a jar for hundreds of years, but its life comes up. Well, that's what God's Word is like. It's not only dynamic and powerful, it's efficient. Even when stammering, sinful messengers do their worst job of teaching it and maybe, you know, through their ignorance or even their sin, misinterpreting it, still exactly the results that God designs for it to do comes about by God's Word. The seed of the Word of God might lie dormant in a Puritan devotional book for two or three hundred years and One of you picks up that book and reads it, and somehow the life-giving message of the gospel comes through to you and gives you great comfort or conviction in your soul. Certainly God the sower still broadcasts the seed of his word far and wide. But secondly, we come to the real heart of this parable when we look at these examples of different soils into which the seed goes. And here the point is that not all human soil sustains the permanent growth of God's seed. There are four different kinds of of soil here. I'm just going to briefly say a word about each of them as it's presented here. Then first of all, in verse 19, you read about what we could call the hardened hearer, the hardened soil. And now remember, we're talking about human beings, not dirt, This is an unresponsive, insensitive person on whom the truth has actually trampled, walked over so many times, but because it has not been received, now every time the truth touches this person, it doesn't penetrate. It only tramples and hardens the surface as this one resists the message that the truth has to bear. 
Yes, it's audibly there. It can be heard just as well as to anyone else. But for whatever reason, and we're not told the reason, maybe the truth of God challenges a a life that selfishly says, I'm going to cling to my way of doing things. I don't want the Word of God to tell me something different. I don't want the morality of the Word of God exposing something that I'm keeping private over here that I intend to do no matter what anybody says. Or maybe the Word of God somehow touches off a a negative experience that somebody had early in life in their family or in early days in church and something that made them withdraw or rebel. And now instinctively they keep on doing that. But for whatever reason, there's a resistance. There's a hard surface. And Jesus first said the birds snatch it, but then when he interpreted it, he said it's actually the evil one himself who's taking away even that which can be heard so that it's not received at all. Well, then there's this second case in verses 20 and 21 that we could call the superficial hearer of God's Word. Now, this time, we would nominally and at least initially want to label this person a Christian. The first person, there'd be a real question about that. But the second person, you'd say, whoa, this is a Christian. Why, in fact, here the soil, the seed has fallen and it germinates and it sprouts and it comes up wonderfully at first. This person makes a profession of faith. Maybe he joins the church and people say, look at this. Here's a life turned around. Here's a life saying Jesus is Lord. But there's a problem. And the soil has no depth to it. By the way, I mean, just editorially insert, I'm sure Jesus must have visited my front yard because this is my front yard. One inch deep topsoil, clay under that. Okay, mine is the barometer for the street. When it's starting to get dry, uh, my yard goes brown first, and all the neighbors say, oh, look, Rogers is brown. We better get the sprinklers out, okay? Jesus is saying, look, here's the life that's got something to receive the truth of God, but it receives it only temporarily. It sprouts, it grows a little bit, but it withers when the heat comes. It withers when opposition comes or someone mocks what is going on in that life or, or trials and suffering come. It, it has no root, and it will not grow permanently. Luther had a comment on this verse. He used a German word. I think I'm pronouncing it correctly. He said, this person is a wettervindisch person, a weathervanish person, a person who's like a weather vane, Moving by the gust, the latest gust of the wind. You know, it might seem to be trained in the true north direction of the Lord, but a breeze comes and he's trained in another direction. He's unreliable. He's not permanent. Certainly we, the people of God, should rejoice whenever we hear an apparent conversion of faith. Whenever somebody comes and, and says, I am, I am coming to Christ. I name Jesus as my Lord and Savior. We would say, praise God. Let's pray for that person. Let's gather around that person and give thanks. But is this truly a permanent disciple of Jesus Christ? That remains to be seen. It's the one who perseveres in Christ, whose growth continues season by season, who perseveres to the end that is Christ's disciple. Well, then thirdly, in verse 22, we have a an explanation of the worldly hearer, I'm going to call him. 
And this time again, the seed falls on soil that is initially good. And the person responds in a way we'd say, ah, another Christian. Hallelujah. But again, the growth comes up and it doesn't last. Not this time because of the depth of the soil, but because of what else is growing alongside it. Thorns or weeds or something is competing here and taking away the growing space. Jesus says it here, it's due to the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth. I could find no better example than the man called the rich young ruler. Remember him? His story's pretty familiar. He came to Christ as a sincere seeker. We make a lot out of seekers today. We're all happy to see a seeker. Well, here's a seeker. And he said, Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Everything about him seemed totally sincere. But Jesus gave him a test that went right to the root of his primary loyalties, and you know he chose his money and the security that it provided him over the radical step of trusting in God. It's almost as if his inner man had a no-vacancy sign posted, already filled up here, no room for spiritual faith. You see, the gospel of free grace in Christ has to compete for attention in a mind that is primarily rooted in monetary values and the acquisition of things. There's a fundamental anxiety when a person is directed at materialism such that he can depend only on that which is material and visible, and it's very hard to depend on that which is invisible, the true and living God. And this isn't only, you see, an ill of wealthy people. I believe you could just as easily be poor or, or at least struggling in your financial life and be so fixed on dealing with that and getting those things that you think are going to give you a great security that that variety of materialism as well is a deceitfulness that would take you away from a trust and a dependence on God through Christ. Well, when you read these descriptions, you realize that the reason why not everybody effectively hears the gospel is not a problem with the seed. It's not a problem with the Word of God. It's a problem that is in people. The weakness is in people. Remember, soil samples, if we may call them that, numbers 2 and 3 and 4 are all outwardly Christians in this parable. Number 1, I don't think so. But 2 and 3, yes, well, they... They respond, something happens, there's an initial uh, something there, but they prove over time to be a flash in the pan. As Christians, I think there's a warning here. There's a warning here for us to examine ourselves. Are we really listening hard and seeking after the truth of God and His Word and receptive to grow in it, to hear more? Not to think, well, I've heard it all before. There isn't anything I could possibly, you know, that sounds a lot like number one. The person who's just jaded, in a sense, with the gospel and thinks they can't be taught anything. Be warned. Maybe you're really in category number one. Very different results come from how we respond to and hear the Word of God. It's, it's almost, in fact, when you think about the the power of the shallow soil and the, and the weed-choked soil, it's almost a wonder that anybody ever hears. But now as the third point this morning, we come to this last kind of soil. 
And our text teaches us this, the good earth, so-called, more than makes up for all the useless soil. Jesus praised what he called the good soil. That is the man or woman who hears the word of God and understands it and produces a crop yielding a hundred or sixty or thirty times what is sown. You know, there are some commentators on this text who say, or at least would imply, if they don't say it directly, that because three out of the four categories of human soil are negative in their ultimate result, that this text is saying that three-quarters of all people who hear the gospel refuse it and are lost. Well, I, I think that's a wrong understanding because I don't believe we have to, have to imagine that these four categories are equal numerically. I mean, just think, what kind of a farmer would it be who went out and, and didn't care where three-quarters of his seed went? He said, I'll throw it on the asphalt pavement. I'll throw it in the barnyard. No, he wouldn't do that because I know nothing's going to grow there. He would try to throw it, and his main aim would be certainly to throw it where it would yield. Is God not of the same wisdom? I don't think this is telling us three-quarters of people numerically, hear the word, are lost. I think it is telling us that, that God certainly has an efficiency and a wisdom in where his word goes. And there are many, many people who hear it as good soil, and there is the, in them the growth that God intends. Well, we need to ask the question then, what is it that makes the good earth good? What is it that allows this earth to produce something when the other did not? You know, this is a hard question to answer unless you're really willing to face the, what the, the Word of God says, and some people don't like the answer that I'm going to tell you. I think verse 11, where he's, he's explaining to them the purpose of parables, has the key to the answer of what makes good earth good. Jesus said, the knowledge of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but it is not given to those others. A commentator named Leon Morris says this about the text. These are his words, not mine. The doctrine of divine election lies behind these words. It is not a matter of merit for disciples that they should be praised for their intellect in understanding what others do not. It is not their comprehension. Their good reception is altogether due to the fact, Morris wrote, that God has chosen them and given them understanding. Now, you know, as I've heard sermons on the parable of the sower in my lifetime, I don't think that's where the emphasis has usually gone. But what other emphasis can we have here? I don't see anything. Please come and correct me if I'm wrong. I don't see anything in this text that gives me an instruction humanly on how to, to make myself into good soil. Uh, you know, some kind of practical how-to, one, two, three steps, and, and you'll be the good soil too. It doesn't say that. It says it is the work of God who sends his seed, his revelation, where he sends it, and who opens up the hearer to hear and respond. In Matthew eleven twenty seven, a number of weeks ago, we had looked at that text there where Jesus said, no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. I'm reminded too of 1 Corinthians 3, 7 where Paul writes, neither he who plants nor him who waters 
is anything, but it is God who makes things grow. And so you see at the bottom of this text, I believe we can't escape the conclusion that it is the sovereign God who prepares his people to be responsive to the seed of his word. And then we ask the question, too, well, what is the fruit then that Jesus is expecting? If we're talking about growth or, or fruitfulness, what does this look like? And some people look at the numbers of 100 times, 60 times, 30 times, and they say, well, that must have to do with how many people hear me witness or watch my testimony in my life, and, and they come, in other words, as, as converts to Christ. How many souls do you win? That interpretation is often taken. I am not at all sure that it is at least the primary interpretation here. In fact, I think it is not the primary one. I think we're, we're directed more to what Galatians 5.22 was talking about. The passage there that writes about what we call the fruit of the Spirit, the blossoming in a life, the growth that comes in a Christian life from the Spirit of God dwelling in one who is a new creation, in Christ Jesus. If God has conceived his own life in you by faith through Christ, growth is going to come. And what does that growth look like? Galatians 5.22 enumerates it. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. These are the very character qualities of Jesus Christ that grow, that inevitably come in a life that is possessed by Christ and inhabited by Christ. And they are the proofs, the identity marks, the green growth that God looks for to say, sure, this is one of my own. Of course, they're growing. Now, maybe this one's not producing it quite as fast as this one over here. I have a windbreak planted on one side of my property of some Leyland cypress bushes. Maybe you know the Leyland cypress. It's a beautiful bush. It has a lovely color of blue-green, and it's pretty healthy most of the time. It grows well. Well, I put, I think it's eight of these in a line four years ago. Three of them are huge. They're getting up there 15, 18 feet high. Two or three of them are, they're doing pretty good, eight to 10, maybe 12 feet. Two of them I'm not completely worried about. They're very green, but they're still only about 18 inches taller than they were when I planted them. But they're all green. They're all growing. They're all Leyland cypress bushes. And that's true of Christians. We do grow at different rates. We do produce different displays of the fruit of of the character of Christ and of personal holiness. But it will be true of every Christian that there must be some measure of this development of likeness to his Lord and of the impulse to, to do good works, to do works of mercy in the Lord's name. A fruitless believer, according to Jesus here, is not a, you know, a a failed Christian. He's a false Christian. The seed has not taken root in that one. But neither is this a measurement that can always be applied in a moment. We need to recall here that growing things require patience. The farmer doesn't put his seed in the ground and go back in a week and say, what a failure this crop is. I don't see a single sprout. He knows the length of time that's needed for the crop to grow, and our God knows that about us as well. It's a lifetime that puts us to the test. 
As we close with this text, I think verses 16 and 17 offer us a, a closing blessing. Jesus said, and when explaining about parables, he said, blessed are your eyes, you that hear and respond, because you see and your ears hear. He said this wonderful thing. Prophets and righteous men longed to see what you see and hear what you hear, and they did not. Folks, we forget this. We forget what a privilege we have in the complete revelation of the Word of God. He's spoken to us in a conclusive, complete, efficient, dynamic way. And Abraham didn't have this in his hands. David didn't have this in his hands. In fact, of course, these people were spokesmen who helped give us this word. Isaiah didn't have it. We have it. We have this wonderful revelation of the seed of the very life of God that would be planted in us to grow and prosper and do what God designs to do in our lives. There's a similar word in 1 Peter 1.12 that increases, I think, the sense of the privilege of a Christian when it says that, that even those prophets who wrote these things down didn't always understand what they were writing, but, but the final effect was given for us, and then the sentence is added, these are things into which angels long to look. God's revelation of himself in Jesus Christ is a wonderful privilege. Do you have an open heart to hear it? Are you hungry for it? If you say, well, I'm not so sure I've been producing that much fruit. A pastor, if I was to give an analysis, I think I'm doing a bad job. Let me tell you this. I don't think you're the best judge. I think others are the best judge of that, of the fruit that God brings in a life that is responding to his word, hearing his word, striving to obey his word. Yes, imperfectly so. Yes, turning in repentance and say, oh, God, I sure blew it there. But the mere fact that you're repenting, the mere fact that you're reacting to his word is a sign you're hearing it. Blessed, privileged are those who hear God's word, who hungrily seek after it, who desire the growth that he alone brings, a growth that springs up even to eternal life. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear and be blessed. And Father, we ask today that you might till us and cultivate us. Help us to recognize the weeds that threaten us. Water us by your Spirit and bring growth in us to your delight. How we thank you for the privilege of your holy word in its life-giving power. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.